How many of you know someone who thinks they're perfect? Now I see husband and wives pointing at each other. How many of you know a lost person who thinks that you think you're perfect? Does anybody know somebody like that? Does anybody ever encounter a non-Christian who condemns us because of our, I I guess you could say, security or, or boldness in the area of our faith and our Christianity... And maybe they throw it in your face by saying, well, well, you're not perfect. Has that ever happened to you? We always want to turn something against somebody by pointing out their faults. And when someone tries to fault find with us, normally our response is, well, don't fault find with me because you're not perfect. And a lot of times when we try to evangelize or we try to share the gospel, we'll be encountered with this mentality. You know, don't try to share that Jesus stuff because I know you're not perfect. And I wonder, do do we really try to, to give off the impression that we are perfect? I mean, I don't think that's the impression we try to give off, but maybe some do. Maybe, maybe there are some Christians who you know, turn their nose at the world because they've now received an air of pridefulness based on their own faith or their own self-righteousness. And it has turned into a bit of legalism which is, can, can come off as thinking that we're trying to be perfect. Is that our goal? To be perfect. Well, how many of you have heard somebody quote the scripture, maybe you said, well, I'm not perfect. But they've said, well, the Bible says, be perfect as God is perfect. Have you ever heard that scripture quoted? Be perfect as God is perfect. See, I've heard that, you know, that, well, we can't be perfect. But some people say, well, you should, because the scripture says, be perfect as I'm perfect. Now, let me tell you, my friends, that's a high bar. But see, if we have to live up to the standard of being perfect, that's a high structure. I want to examine this scripture here tonight. It's in Matthew chapter 5. Turn with me there. And I hope you've been engaged by that little bit of discussion because maybe you think tonight that you're supposed to be perfect. Or maybe you think that God will not be satisfied with you until you are perfect. I want to examine that a little bit. Hey, we always do this on Wednesday night. Let's not break tradition. Let's stand for the reading of God's Word here. Matthew 5, verse 43. Jesus says, You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, Love your enemies. Bless those who curse you. Do good to those who hate you. And pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. That you may be sons of your Father in heaven. 
For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and he sends rain on the just and the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward have you? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet your brethren only, what do you do more than others? Do not even the tax collectors do so? Therefore, you shall be perfect, just as your Father in heaven is perfect. May God bless the reading of His Word. Be seated in the house of God. Man, if I've said something this year, I've said a few things. Number one, when you take the text out of the context, you're left with a con. Secondly, whenever you see a therefore, you look into Scripture to see what it's there for. And if someone's ever quoted this verse to you, what they've probably said is, be perfect as God is perfect. Maybe you've had some legalistic preacher hammer down on you saying, you better be perfect. You better not stumble because God is perfect. Maybe you've heard that once in your life. But see, when they quote that to you, they leave off the therefore. See, you can't quote a verse out of context with a therefore. If you do that, the therefore doesn't make sense. If I come up to you and I say, Dean, therefore, have a good day. Therefore what? I would have explained, maybe, maybe I would have said, you know, I was, knew it was your birthday, and I had a present order from Amazon.com, they're backed up, and you're not going to get it. It's coming. Therefore, have a good day. You see, the therefore now makes sense. You follow? So we're going to explain the therefore. Here's the whole context of this, who went to the Bible conference that we had a few months ago. Here's the whole context of this paracope. You remember that big word? I, found, uh, I sound smart. What is a paracope? It is a passage of Scripture with a theme. And this passage of Scripture goes from Matthew 5, 43 to 48. And here's the theme. It starts off with this. Jesus said, you, shall, you have heard it said, love your neighbor, hate your enemy. But I say to you, Love your enemies. Jesus establishes this whole paracope of six verses with this theme. Love your enemies. Love those in your life who are the hardest to love. Now Jesus doesn't just say, love your in-laws. He doesn't just say, love your, your, your angry little sister. No, no, those people are difficult but enemies actually hate you. Let me tell you who's our enemy. The terrorists that seek to bomb our buildings. The gangsters who want to steal things from you. The murderers that we see on the news. These are the most difficult people that we can conceive of. 
He does not preface love your enemies by saying the ones that don't do anything to you. Listen, if you never talk bad about me, you're not an enemy. You're just an acquaintance that I might know of. Now, a lot of times we think love your enemy as your neighbor. And that we should love our neighbor. Yeah, yeah, we should love our neighbor. We all know this. It says this in Scripture too. But how many of you have actual enemies? This was the level of love that we were pushed to, that Jesus was pushing us to in the Gospels. To love those people who literally hate you. Love those people who want to do you harm. Look what he says in verse 44. Bless those who curse you. A lot of times people on the highway, you know, I forget to put my turn signal on. And then they tell me uh, that I'm number one. I just thank you, that's nice, but I refer to myself as number two. Someone rose down the window and says, you know what, you can go to hell, just say I can't. I'm sanctified and justified on my way to glory. Do good to those who hate you. Pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. That you may be sons of your Father in heaven. Verse 46. If you love those who love you, what reward have you? Most of us spend the majority of our life loving those who love us back. And this is nice. We cuddle with our families. We eat dinner with them. We eat and we hang out with the people who love us. What reward do we get? Well, we get, we get the reward of love, of having a relationship. But let me tell you something. This is not the essence of Christianity that we live in our little box with the people who already love us. If you think right now about the people who you spend most of your time with, they are the people who love you back. We, we get accustomed to comfortable people who maybe don't rub us the wrong way and don't challenge us and don't put us outside of our little love me box. But this is where Christ wants us to go. To the highways and the hedges, to the drug addicts and the homosexuals. I had a lady... Last week, let me know that her daughter was a homosexual. She says, my daughter still wants to hear the word of God preached. And I believe that is because God's not done with her yet. She says, would my daughter be allowed to come to your services? I said, well, let's, let's take the opposite route. Let's say, no, she can't then she doesn't hear the word of God anymore. And as far as I know, the only thing to bring about faith, faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. So if we limit someone who you know, does not conform to our acceptable pattern and, and shun them outside the walls of the church, then we have broken the ability for transformation to occur. You see this? She said, you know, around the time she was a young lady and figuring out herself and that the church that she was at cast her out. 
And you know, you know there, there's a point where someone who's living in sin, whether it be you know, drug addiction, homosexuality, anything you want to name. I mean, you don't let that person you know, become a Sunday school teacher or hold a position or, or possibly even be a church member. But should we shut the doors to those people that don't conform? That's not the message of the gospel. The message of the gospel is that you didn't conform, but God opened the doors. <laughs> you weren't supposed to be in the kingdom because, let me tell you what, you weren't godly and you didn't, you were filthy. And God let you in. Amen? Here's what I want us to know about verse 48. It says, therefore, in this context, once you love your enemies, this is the context, once you love difficult people who hate those who hate you and want to curse you and insult you, once you love those people, then you have reached Christian perfection. This is what I want to convey tonight. Perfect does not mean without error. It means having the most desirable quality. You may be stumbling along. You may not have memorized 20 verses in your Christian existence. But if you can learn to love the people who hate you, then you have reached a level of spiritual completion. Perfection. Because as I said, perfect doesn't mean without error. It means attaining the desirable quality. Let me tell you about Roman. I believe Roman is the perfect baby. I mean, he's cuddly. He's sweet. He's funny. Does he still mess himself several times a day? Of course. There is no baby that doesn't. Except the ones that you buy at the store. And they're not as fun. So perfect doesn't mean without flaw. It means having the desirable quality. Imagine a new 2013 Corvette on the showroom floor. In perfect condition. Now let me ask you a question. Can that 2013 Corvette make you bacon? In my book, that would be called an error. That's a limitation, a fault. It can't do everything, but it can do what it's designed to do. Spiritual perfection doesn't mean you have reached the maximum of everything. Jesus said spiritual perfection is when you can learn to love those who are most difficult to love. Your enemy. Friend, you might not know who uh, Melchizedek was and what the Torah is and the Pentateuch. And you might not understand dispensationalism or, or covenant theology. But if you can love people that are difficult to love, you have attained spiritual completion. That's, that's good news. It doesn't mean that there aren't other things that will be mixed into the equation. It means this is the end. This is where God wants you. And He wants to keep you there. That's the context. If you can love your enemies, therefore, 
You shall be perfect. You see what the therefore is there for? For that. See, the Greek word for perfection is teleos. Meaning having reached its purpose. Having reached its purpose. It doesn't mean without error. It doesn't mean having every quality. It means having reached its purpose. And your purpose is to love everybody, including the enemies. Including those people who hate you, those who curse you, those who insult you. It means you have reached the desired end point of Christianity. You see, this word teleos is used also in 1 Corinthians 2.6. He says, we do, however, speak a message of wisdom among the mature. In 1 Corinthians 2.6, the word perfect is translated mature. It means having reached a level of understanding. It doesn't mean that they're not still struggling. It doesn't mean that they may, may or may not still have a problem in their marriage. It means that they've understood the point of the gospel to command us to love. The Word of God defines spiritual maturity as the ability to love those who hate you and persecute you. There are some people who think they are spiritually mature and who think they are spiritually above, yet they lack the ability to love those Who caused them problems. They have put other things. Knowledge. Cleanliness. Looks. Above. What actual spiritual maturity is defined as. Listen. It doesn't matter how many scriptures you know. How good you can discourse the Bible. How many collection of theological books in your library. If you're not loving people who cause you problems. You are not spiritually mature. Matter of fact. The the standard of spiritual maturity. Is loving people who hate you. Spiritual maturity is not about how well you keep the law. It's not about how good you are or how pretty you are. It's, about, it's not about how much you abstain from doing. Turn a few chapters over to Matthew 19. You guys got to go anywhere tonight? Anybody got plans? I got choir practice. Matthew 19, 16 says this. Now behold, one came and said to him, being Jesus, the man said, good teacher, what good thing shall I do that I might have eternal life? So Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good but one, that is God. But if you want to enter into life, keep the commandments. He said to him, which ones? Jesus said, you shall not murder, shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother and love your neighbor as yourself. The young man said to him, all these things I have kept from my youth, what do I still lack? Jesus said to him, if you want to be perfect, go sell what you have and give to the poor. And you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. But when the young man heard the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Now notice in this passage that this man, 
After Jesus tells him, you need to keep all the law, notice this man's response. He says in verse 20, all these things I have kept from my youth. What is he telling Christ? I've kept the whole law. I've kept the whole law. Are you serious? You've never lusted after a woman? Are you blind? And if you say no, we know you're telling a lie. Thou shalt not lie. You've never gotten angry at somebody. You've never mentioned a cuss word. You've kept the whole law. From the get-go, this man is boasting in his own righteousness. And his question is introduced by asking Christ, What good thing must I do to inherit eternal life? He is approaching Jesus from the foundation of works-based righteousness. Christ, or he says, good teacher. Hey, good teacher. What, what can I do? To inherit eternal life. His understanding of salvation is evidently completely apart from the Old Testament because if he would have read the Old Testament, he would know that Abraham was credited faith, was credited righteousness through faith. So he was living to be good. You see, he was living to reach the standard, to be perfect. That's what he wanted. How perfect do I have to be to inherit eternal life? And Jesus mentioned to him the commandments. Now count with me the commandments here. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. Does anyone have another one? Does anyone have a sixth one? There is love your neighbor as yourself. But I think in another translation I counted six of the ten commandments and then that one. We're going to have to do a research project for a moment. Let's do a little Bible trivia. What commandments did Jesus leave out? Say again. Okay, Sabbath. Covet. Stealing was included. Uh, uh, A graven image. I'm sorry, okay, graven image. No other gods, Lord's name, and then he did not include covet, correct? So that's the other five. All right, so Jesus left out five of the, uh, of the Ten Commandments, and I want to show you that I believe Christ did this on purpose, because there were two given which I think... Jesus would have known and the man would have known that he would have obeyed. And those two to begin with are these. Number one, Jesus did not mention keep the Sabbath day holy. Why? Because a Jew in 33 AD would have always kept the Sabbath day holy. They would not have worked. I mean, matter of fact, this mentality carried into America until like 1950s. Every store was closed until the 1950s. No one worked on Sunday. If the Christians were doing it, we know the Jews were doing it, so Jesus kind of left, left this one out. Secondly, he also did not mention, uh, uh, do not take the Lord's name in vain. Now, the Jews were so serious about that, when they translated the Old Testament, they did not even write God's name, which his revealed name to, to Moses, 
Our transliteration is Yahweh, which means I am. They would not even write the name of God or speak it their entire life. Their entire life they would not speak or write the name of God. They would simply say the Lord. You see, when they translated the Old Testament, they would say the Lord. In your Bible, probably King James, something like that, whenever you see in the Old Testament the Lord, the original was actually Yahweh. They were so serious. They didn't even want to write it without wrong motives. So they never said it. So Jesus, he knew, he knew that that one would not have been in jeopardy. But what three were also there? Thou shalt not covet. Thou shalt not have any other gods. And thou shalt have no graven image. You see... The first two were understood. All Jews would have kept those. But the other three had to do with the man's possessions. Coveting, idolatry, and graven image had to do with the man's possessions. Everything that this man had was to him a graven image. Everything that this man had was to him what kept him from Coming into following Christ. It was his idol, what he worshipped. And it was because of his covetousness of things. So Jesus left these out and he didn't mention them to him. He mentioned the five of the law that he knew would be okay. And the man says, yes, I've kept all of these. And Jesus probably thinking, oh really? This man worships stuff. And this stuff was the graven image to the idol of his own self-righteousness that he could boast in good works. He worshipped himself and he amassed a great collection of stuff as a testimony of how good he was. So Jesus, when he said, if you want to be perfect, he was addressing the man's own pride. How good do I, how good must, what level must I reach? Jesus says, you want to be perfect? And sell all your stuff. He went straight to the man's heart. His idolatry, his graven images, his self-righteousness. You see, even though the man had kept the rest of the law, his heart was rotten. Even though he tried to stack up his good works and his level of perfection, he probably memorized the scriptures. He probably attended Sabbath every Sunday. He might even have been a deacon in the Jerusalem church. But his heart was rotten. I've met rotten deacons. There's not a single one serving here. Make that right, Jeff, Fred, Charlie. You see, a title or a degree or that status does not cover up rottenness. Let me tell you about another man who was rotten. He was a liar. He had not kept any of the law. His name was Zacchaeus. Once he told Jesus that he was going to sell everything and give back to those which he had done wrong, Jesus said in Luke 19, 9, Today salvation has come to this house because this man is a son of Abraham. Isn't it amazing that there was a man who was a good, upright Jew who had all the things and he had the possessions and he was the, the picture of prosperity and Jesus told this man, your heart's what's keeping you because you've worshipped stuff. And on the other hand, there's this filthy, rotten tax collector and he simply makes a profession of faith and says, I'm going to give stuff away. Jesus says, now that's salvation. 
The man hadn't attended church yet. He wasn't even on the membership roll. Hadn't even gone through the new believers class. And Jesus said, this is what I'm talking about. Not from his goodness and his, his level, but from his heart. Because the man's heart was transformed. This man too is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Let me tell you what. You know the scripture says, Jesus says, I didn't come to save the righteous. Those who think that they're good enough, those who think that they're perfect, Jesus didn't come for those. Jesus came for the dirty people. Jesus came for the broken people that understand that without God, they are nothing. Jesse Ventura, he said Christianity was for the weak. Praise God, when I'm weak, he is strong. I don't want to boast in my own efforts, but in the glory of God. Because when it comes to size and status, I recall that there was a a giant who had all the tools and weaponry and experience defeated by a young shepherd boy that had faith. A stone can do more than a large javelin with faith. The perfection of Christianity is not about how clean you are, how clean you look. It's about your ability to be like God in the matter of loving people that hate you. Matter of fact, the supreme message of the gospel and of Christ is that God loved those who did not love Him. Let me tell you something. God loved you before you ever loved Him. Some people have come to think that their decision to follow Christ initiates the reception of God's love. But see, how could an enemy of God ever come to love Him? Colossians 1.21 says, This includes you who are once far away from God. You were His enemies, separated from Him by your evil thoughts and actions. Let me tell you, before Christ transformed your heart, every thought was against God. You thought about yourself. You worshipped yourself. Your life was about you. You were an enemy to God, diametrically opposed to His glory and His plan. You think, well, that wasn't me, preacher. I wasn't that hateful. Let me tell you what, if you don't believe that, you'll never see that you deserved eternal death and punishment. But because our own sinfulness was the marker that said, we deserve wrath. God said, I'm not going to give it to you, but I'm going to give you righteousness and send my son for you. The whole message of the gospel is that God loved his enemies. And that Christ loved you while you were his enemy. And the reason you are a Christian today is because you were God's enemy. But God loved you first. Some of you have never heard that. You were an enemy of God. Separate from Him. I don't know if you were 5 or 55. But let me tell you what. A 4 year old can be against God's will. Mine is every night when I try to get her out of the bathtub. <laughs> Bella, you're outside the will of God. Brush your teeth. Comb your hair. How many nights do we have to go through it? Do you know what I realized today? That Christians are more fond of messages about hell than they are about heaven. Why? Because hell makes sense to the flesh. See, a few months ago I preached a message on the reality of hell and I received all kind of amens and thanks after the message. I preached about hellfire and brimstone. People were like, that was good, preacher. We needed that. You mean a saved, sanctified sinner needs to hear about the wrath of God displayed for eternity? Unless it's promoting you to evangelize, there's no other reason you need to hear it. 
How many of you went and shared the gospel after that sermon on hell? If we didn't, it needs to be preached again. But see, we're like, yeah, yeah, preach on hell, preacher. I know my neighbor, he's just evil. That's where he's going, I'm going to tell you what. He deserves that. <laughs> I had a guy tell me, he's like, preacher, I want a more hellfire and brimstone. I said, go to the Mormon church, you'll eventually get it. But rarely, when I preach a message on grace about the unmerited favor of God, does someone say, boy, that was, that was needed. That's exactly what I needed, that I didn't deserve. I didn't deserve righteousness, but God gave it to me. That was helpful. No. I, I, I've, I've, I've wondered, why does angry preaching, why does legalistic preaching even attract people? Because it comforts the flesh. Because we say, yeah, I'm not, I'm not as bad as that guy. I must be okay. Legalistic preaching in actuality makes us comfortable. Matter of fact, a guy in the audience this Sunday was a preacher for 24 years. He told me that he preached the message of unmerited favor and grace for 24 years. And that no one understood and no one listened. Sound like Jonah. Sound like Isaiah, who God said, you know the story of Isaiah chapter 6, and I'm closing down, folks, we're okay. Isaiah chapter 6, and he sees this magnificent revelation of God, probably the best revelation of God in the entire Old Testament, maybe the entire Bible, and the train of his robe filled the temple, and the voice of the angels shook the pillars, and it's amazing, and smoke and everything is like, wow, he's going to go out and lead a revival and be like Billy Graham. God said, no. You're going to go preach now, and no one will listen. That's what he says. Read Isaiah 6. He says, you're going to go preach the gospel, the message of God's glory, and no one is going to listen to you. Man, that's disappointing. I believe I have a call to preach, but I wouldn't want that one. I wouldn't want to know that no one's going to hear, no one's going to understand that their hearts are going to be turned against God's glory. That's why we don't preach for the accolade of the flesh. We preach for the glory of God even if no one understands it. Let me tell you what, folks. If no one gets saved for 20 years, but God's gospel is preached, God will still be glorified. Because there's some preacher right now out in the the backwoods, out in the country that's got 70 people in his town and 69 go there. The other person just a reprobate sinner, but praise God, 69 go there. And they haven't got a new convert, but he's been preaching the gospel and God will be glorified because it's the preaching of the gospel that accomplishes his end. The person that wants to seek justice against their enemy is the person that does not understand the gospel. Maybe you've had something happen to you this year where someone hurt you and someone wronged you and you just wanted to get Get vengeance. Get back. The person that wants to seek justice does not understand the gospel. The gospel is that you were God's enemy destined for hell. That you deserve to be crushed. You deserve to go to hell. But God did not give you what you deserve. 
Matter of fact, God's definition was justice is that you deserve to be crushed, but he crushed his own son. That's God's justice. And you who deserve hell get what you don't deserve, and that is heaven. The Christian who forgets about grace is the one who thinks their sin don't stink. They forget that they were a a reprobate sinner, an enemy of God, destined for wrath. But Christ intervened and stepped in the way. Somebody asked me this week, they said, Pastor, when are you going to preach a message other than about grace? I said, you know, never. That's the only message I've got, folks. You might think it's a one-act wonder, but let me tell you, you're going to need grace next Sunday, and you're going to need grace the next Sunday, and you're going to need grace in 2014 and 15 because it's the only thing that will help. I'm like a pitcher. i got one ball I know how to throw, and I'm going to throw it as hard as I can. And that's the gospel of God's grace. I, I mean, as far as I know, there's 66 books, and that's all that they talk about. That God is glorious and graceful. We deserve hell, but he gave us righteousness, and that's the message. I can't come up with something new. And if I come up with something new, you better get out the doors. Because if you hear something other than the grace of God come from the pulpit, you're in the wrong place. If it's not about grace and it's about the law and it's about the works and it's about how good can I be, preacher? How good do I need to be to make sure that I can make it? And we're going to hang on the precipice of hell based on our actions. That's legalism and righteousness. If it's not about grace, then it's about you. And it's not about God's glory, it's about your glory. And it's the wrong gospel. The flesh is not good news. If we start preaching about how we can improve ourselves based on our works or our improvement or how good we can be, we'll take our eyes off of grace. But let me tell you what, the more we immerse ourselves in grace, then we'll be empowered to reach spiritual perfection. And that is to love the unlovable because that's what Christ did for us. The only way for us to be perfect, to reach spiritual maturity, is to love those. Who hate us. Love those who curse you. Love those who persecute you. Love those who are your enemies. Don't matter if you've been a Christian one day or ten years. We can be spiritually complete when we abide in the love of God. And you know what? I talked to a preacher today, and he said, You know what? When we put our eyes on people, we're going to be let down. Let me tell you what, when you put your eyes on the pastor, you're going to be let down. But if we keep our eyes on God and His grace, we'll never be let down. Let's do that, church. Let's just focus on the glory of God. And let's proclaim it among the nations. And let's proclaim it at McDonald's. And let's proclaim it at Starbucks. And let's proclaim it wherever we go. 